So we know about Stonewall, right? We know about these big moments from our history that affected real big change. But recently I've been interested in and really compelled by the smaller moments that don't necessarily come to mind. The moments that mattered, but that future generations aren't gonna read about in history books. It's the kind of thing I think you'll hear Elsie Granerson describe today when talking about his wedding. At that point, Elsie was working at ESPN, and during Sports Nation, the show he co-hosted, they talked about his wedding and showed pictures from it on air. This was 2016, you know, a very different time. And if it wasn't the first time, it definitely was one of the first times that ESPN had shown wedding pictures from a queer couple on air, let alone from one of the hosts that people have been watching every day talk on TV about their favorite subject, sports. I mean, just to broadly generalize, there's probably not a lot of overlap between the people who watch something like Pose or Queerest Folk and the people who watch Sports Nation on ESPN. So for them to see this, the people who probably needed to see it the most, I think it's incredibly meaningful. Elsie joins us today to share that story. He also talks about how being the quote-unquote first somewhere doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be set up for success. And we also talk about his newest project that's the very fun, very gay podcast called Life Out Loud. The new season of Life Out Loud is out now. From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. What I think is so interesting about your career is that for the time, you know, like 20 years ago, it would have been really easy for you to have been out and just never talk about it. To be out, but really kind of like let people forget about it. And you didn't do that. You wrote about being gay. You talked about being gay in a way I think that stands out for the time. Was that a conscious decision that you made? Absolutely it was because I knew the reasons why I was in the closet. I understood what that impact could mean if I was more comfortable publicly with my sexual orientation. You know, I wasn't always on CNN or ABC. I wasn't always at ESPN, right? But I knew that every step of the way, there was an opportunity for me to maybe make things better for one person. And if me being more public about my sexual orientation and not being ashamed of it helped just one person, then yeah, it was absolutely worth it. So you're right. It was intentional. And so did you ever receive like pushback? Like, don't do an entire TED talk about that. Like, do something else. Why are you using past tense? <laughs> Talking about, <laughs> did I ever? I'm still getting those, <laughs> those comments. Wait, how does that pushback look today? Oh, wow, boy. So the death threats come via email or social media. And back in the day, there used to be phone calls and letters to the editor or letters directly to me. You know, the very first time that I got a death threat, was around the time of anthrax. And so I remember getting like the powder and it was baby powder, but it was designed to, you know, intimidate me to, to, to scare me. Because you're a public yeah. gay man. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for reminding me. It's been a long time since I thought about the anthrax number. You know, I thought I remember all the other ones. <laughs> I forgot about the anthrax one. That was, that was the thing. You know, I, I think that a lot of us, and I'm part of this us that I'm speaking of, you know, we really kind of forgot what it was like in the 90s. So often we talk about Stonewall and we talk about HIV AIDS epidemic 
And then we kind of skip over the 90s as if, you know, that was better some kind of way. But really the 90s, particularly early on, is when the AIDS epidemic was just becoming talked about. You know, the 80s, we suffered in silence. It was the 90s that we actually began to talk about it. And with that discussion came more pushback. And you began to understand just what kind of country we're living in and what we were required to navigate through. And I came out during the 90s in the heart of all of that. I mean, people thought that, you know, it wasn't nothing for anybody to ask me if I was positive or if I had AIDS, you know, when I came out. And I mean, like in casual conversation, you know, it's like going, oh, no, I'm not married to a woman. I'm I'm gay. It's like, oh, how are you dealing with, you know? And I'm like, wait, what? I just said I was gay. I didn't say anything else about who I was or what was going on in my life other than the fact that I'm attracted to the same gender. But people made those assumptions and hiring was made based upon that. Promotions were made upon based upon that. And for a lot of Americans, unfortunately, firings were was based upon that as well. You said, too, that there was this thing articulated to you, like, we can't send a gay man into the locker room to, to cover sports teams. Right. Once you were hired, though, did you find that they were purposely, like, not sending you into locker rooms and to cover certain things? I definitely have felt for the, you know, a big chunk of my career that the opportunities that I was qualified for or, or expressed interest in that I did not get, a lot of that, particularly early on, were attributed to me being openly gay. Now, I, I say a lot of it because, you know, as you know, I'm also happy to be black. And so you don't know if what, you know, you are being, you know, subjected to is based upon homophobia or if it's based upon racism or if it's based upon both. And a lot of people ask me, you know, which part of my being was harder. You know, you really don't know, really. Like, I could point to statistics and go, well, you know, obviously there weren't a lot of openly gay journalists period, during, you know, 1995 or whatever it was. But I also can point to statistics to support there weren't a lot of Black journalists in certain positions in this country, particularly, you know, nationally in terms of sports writers or hosting late night television or hosting the evening news. Like, we weren't anywhere around that either. So certainly, I think we can all agree that history has shown that whether you're LGBTQ or a racial minority, there are obstacles in this country that could, you know, hold your career back. Well, I think that that is what I was so curious about with my first question, because when you're on TV, you know, we know you're black. <laughs> you know, we're looking at you. We can see that. Thank you. <laughs> but you, we don't always know that you're gay. And so like you like had to keep reminding people like in a way. You do, but that's not unique to me, right? Like we all do this in our lives. The analogy I like to use is, you know, you go to the florist or to the grocery store and you decide to pick up your same-sex partner flowers. And particularly if you're male, you know, the cashier will say, oh, she's going to love those. And you're confronted with this opportunity to either correct the person or let them continue believing that you're heterosexual. That's part of the coming out process. You know, whether you are working at a Fortune 500 company or you're working at your local hardware store, if they throw a holiday party, you have to ask yourself, am I in a space, am I in an environment where if I brought my same-sex better half, would that be an issue? So, yeah, you're right. I have to come out all the time, but I think we all do have to come out all the time because there are natural assumptions about who we are as a country, and there's also natural assumptions about you know, what's to be expected in certain environments. When you were at ESPN, you married your husband. Uh, how was your marriage like treated and acknowledged? You know, I was really fortunate in the sense that by the time marriage equality had passed, Disney, which owns ESPN and ABC, 
had already set a culture in which LGBTQ plus acceptance was part, an essential aspect of the culture. And so by the time I got married, not only was I was fortunate not to have to worry about losing my job, which unfortunately a lot of Americans still do today in parts of the country, but the show that I was co-hosting at the time, Sports Nation, showed my wedding pictures. And we talked about my marriage on air. You know, I don't keep track as the first ever, blah, blah, blah. It's not really, you know, something I consume myself with. But I really don't recall anyone else at ESPN who married their same-sex partner having that those pictures up on the network prior to that day. And so that day did mean a lot to me. Not just because it was, you know, celebrating my marriage, you know, which was obviously a really, really awesome and amazing thing to do, but just that I had to believe that there was a queer kid out there working in a bar, maybe not even seeing the volume, glancing up and seeing that on ESPN. Or maybe it was some closeted coach somewhere in America who was watching ESPN and saw that. I know what that would have done for me if I'm watching, you know, Pistons Lakers or Pistons and and Celtics. And in the midst of that coverage, they acknowledge one of the co-hosts has just married their husband. That would have done so much for me. So I'm just going to assume that may have done something for someone else uh, in places of the country that doesn't have the same level of acceptance that we've grown accustomed to in larger parts of the world. That's a big deal for also like the audience that ESPN has. Like it reaches into like middle America. It's not just like the coastal New York, LA that would like applaud a gay marriage. Right. I mean, I mean, I didn't take that moment lightly. You know, Sports Nation was a show in which we were really irreverent and we tried to joke a lot, around a lot. And I'm pretty sure we said some weird jokes when my picture came up. Like maybe why would you wear that? Or like, is that your hair? Like, you know, like I'm sure we had fun with it. But at the same time, The real conversation is that we were able to talk about it. We were able to talk about me, this openly gay black man, marrying his husband. And it was just as normal as, you know, 10, 15 years prior to that, that if an anchor on Good Morning America or Today Show or something got married, they would show the picture and they would talk about it. They would normalize it. For that moment on ESPN at Sports Nation, we were able to normalize same-sex marriage and that aspect of it felt good. So you're right. That had to impact somebody out there in a positive way. And I'm really glad that I was able to pay a little part in that. I also don't want to like paint your time there as like an only like with a rosy like lens, like the rose colored glasses. I mean, you wrote when you left that you vacillated between being tolerated and being ignored there. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was like, yeah, you're here and yeah, we'll utilize you, but we really don't see you as a part of us. Sports society, sports culture, sports fandom. We don't think so. So while we'll utilize you for certain things because you're talented and we'll utilize you for certain things because that's that's your job description, we won't utilize you in the same way we would people that we think really represent who we are trying to reach, which is sports culture, which is sports nation, ironically enough. And I saw tons of examples of that. You know, one that I was reminded of by a, by a colleague was I was really fortunate to host a online television show or online show, I guess, back in the day called LZ's Cafe. And while I'm absolutely thrilled to have had that opportunity, I also know that our budget was so shitty that at moments I had to hire freelance reporters who had cameras that had masking tape and duct tape holding it up. 
And I wasn't talking to nobodies. I distinctly remember interviewing Kevin Garnett and the lens from the camera popped out from the duct tape that was helping to hold it together. But that was all that we can afford on my show. But you fast forward, you know, not too long ago, and I see other colleagues who have now developed similar shows after I I developed that one get support. They have budgets. They're not worried that the fucking lens is going to fall out of the camera as they're interviewing, you know, a high profile athlete. Those are the little things that I'm talking about. You know, never, ever having anyone hired to do my hair, for instance. But I get to see every single one of my other colleagues sit in that chair and get their hair done along with their makeup and not be required to get in a van, be shipped elsewhere, be offset away from the action for hours on end, brought back in just to get their hair done. Because in all the years that I cover Wimbledon in London, they never hired anyone to actually do natural black hair. Shit like that. You know, you you get the hints. You know when you're being celebrated and embraced and versus being tolerated. So I had been used to, in a, to a certain point, being tolerated as an openly gay person. So my armor was thick and I, you know, had a nice and shiny sword and I went to battle every single day for the most part for 17 years. And then one day I woke up and I decided, I want to fight for something else now. And that's why I left. That feeling of being tolerated, when in like the 17 years at ESPN did that start? Was it day one? I would say it was pretty early when I realized the dynamic that may have been at play. The clearest example I have of that was when the person who was most responsible for hiring me to help him run the NBA department tell me to my face that he was kind of shocked that I knew so much about the NBA. That's what you were hired for. Your response was my response. (laughs) That's what I was hired for, or so I thought. Yeah, we hired you to help me run the NBA department, but we really didn't expect you to be good at it. We really wanted you to check these HR boxes, right? We've hired another black person. We got an openly gay person. Ooh, look at us. We're so progressive. But the real reason why I wanted the job and the real reason why I thought I was really good at it is because I was a fucking expert in the NBA. So to have the person who was instrumental in hiring you say that to you, to your face, you figure it out pretty quickly you know, some of the things you're going to have to navigate and if you're going to have success and longevity at this company. And I'm really blessed that I had a lot of angels along the way to help me find that success and have that longevity. Because 17 years is not nothing. No, it's not. I mean, that's damn near an adult child. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so no, it's, it's, it's not nothing. But, you know, I don't regret those 17 years. I look on them for the most part fondly. I got to see... So many incredible moments. You know, I got to see the Dodgers win the World Series, like something they hadn't done in like 30 plus years. Like I got so many amazing opportunities for those of us who love sports. They know what I'm talking about. These are once in a lifetime events to be at personally. And so I don't, I'm not going to sit up here and bitch and moan and complain about my entire time at ESPN because why? (laughs) I had so many amazing things. You know, almost every pro sport in recent years has had a big athlete come out. Carl Nassib in the NFL most recently in 2021. But going back a bit, Jason Collins in the NBA came out in 2013. There's a bit more time there so we can see the impact of what has or hasn't come from that. I don't want to undersell the importance of it, but I think that, you know, we've not seen a cascade of queer people coming out in the NBA since then. It did not transform the league. So my question is like, Back then, would you thought it would have like led to more? No, I did not. <laughs> I think there are a lot of things at play here. Yeah. 
there's an assumption from some people that there aren't any other people, gay men specifically in the big four sports, who are gay. So it's like, there aren't any others. It's the one perspective. And the other perspective is that there are tons more, and they're too ashamed to come out or too fearful to come out. And I would argue that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. That maybe part of the reason why there hasn't been this cascade of, of players coming out is because there isn't one to be had. That's not suggesting that there aren't a lot more, but, you know, how many more do you need to come out before you're satisfied? Well, I think, like, you know, if we can see that, like, one person does not, like, automatically make this, like, a welcoming environment, what will it take? Like, what is needed or necessary to, like, create more change? Well, I I would like to think that there have been, you know, some leagues, and you mentioned Jason Collins in the NBA, that are a little bit more ahead than other leagues. But I would say, when I think about those eight years between Jason Collins and Carl, right, when Jason came out... I was on ESPN and I got into this huge fight that went viral, unfortunately, um, with my colleague because we started talking about homosexuality and if it's a sin and and the Bible and like it was really, really messy (laughs) and and not good. And there was a lot of other pushbacks from other athletes on the conversation, even though there were athletes like the great late Kobe Bryant who came out and supported him. There were still athletes who you know, felt a certain kind of way about that and had some negative things to say about it. And that was the environment then. I don't think we really saw that in 2021. You know, if anything, you know, what we saw was, I believe, a lot of progress being made by the media that cover these events, that cover these sports and these stories. You know, because a lot of part of the way that this story has been perceived is the way that has been constructed by the media that covers these sports and these coming out stories. And so I think that when you did not see NFL beat reporters and mainstream media and other aspects, whether it's CNN or ABC or what have you, when you didn't see them continually ask players about how they feel about having a gay guy in the showers and stupid ass questions like that, when we stopped hearing those questions, you started seeing Carl being treated more like a members of the Oakland, of the Las Vegas Raiders and less of the gay football player, which was his wish too, by the way. Whereas back when Jason Collins came out, you were still debating about the shower. <laughs> so I think there's been a lot of progress that has been made. And in that progress, you know, hopefully comes a culture in which if someone is queer and if someone does feel comfortable coming out, that they feel and know that they will be supported by those leagues and by their fellow athletes. I think Carl's story is one example that we can build on, but we shouldn't overlook what the WNBA has been doing in this space for years. We shouldn't look overlook what tennis has been doing in this space for decades, which is when those athletes come out, finding ways to not just tolerate them, but to celebrate them, recognizing how difficult it is for those athletes to do that. That's a great point, because when I say sports, what I really mean is men's sports. Women's basketball, women's soccer, as you said, tennis, have really proven themselves to be like extremely accepting places. Absolutely, absolutely. And we and we know why, right? Like there is a stigma with women versus men in this space that we're still working our way through. But there's also the stigma now with being a trans athlete that we're just beginning to work our way through. So while we are patting ourselves in the back of society because Carl Nasup came out of the closet and the NFL didn't kick him out, Let's not pretend as if we now have full equality for everyone in our community in this space of sports. Our trans youth are being attacked in sports, as well as Olympic figures, as well as collegiate and high school figures. They're all being attacked. They're all being targeted by, 
you know, legislators in the state as well as the federal level. So while it is wonderful to celebrate the progress, let's not pretend as if we've arrived. Well, as you said, the news media has learned a lot in the eight years since Jason Collins came out about how to talk about these issues. When it comes to like the trans community, have they also learned those lessons? The trans community is under attack. I don't think that there's any other way to characterize the onslaught of bills that have been introduced, particularly on the state level, targeting trans people in general, but trans youth specifically, on um, whether it's access to the health care that they need, whether it's being able to use the restrooms that they feel most comfortable in, or which sports team to be a part of. So, no, I don't think that we are where we need to be in this space. We just had these conversations up until Carnasip. We just did this. And here we are again, almost at the exact same point from a social political perspective. And the people who celebrated Jason Collins and the people who celebrated Carnasip aren't approaching these stories with the same understanding that we did post Jason Collins and post Carnasip. We shouldn't just simply be saying, oh, well, this state is doing blah, 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 blah. No, we've just did this. So why are we not attacking this onslaught in the same degree with a better understanding? You know, the phrase is, if you know better, do better. So as an industry, we need to be doing better. We keep talking about Jason Collins. Did you know he was gay before he came out? I did not. And I don't know why, because (laughs) one of my really, really good buddies is a mutual friend of his who also works in the sports industry and also worked for one of the teams that Jason played on. And I'm not a real sort of like, hey, you think he's gay? Do you think he's gay? Like That's not really how my vibe. Well, I meant less about like gaydar and more about like, LZ, you are one of the most like visible people, gay people in the sports world. I didn't know if like people were in the closet and like confiding in you. There are. There were and there are. Jason wasn't one of them. And that's what I mean. Like, you know, it's kind of weird given how close in proximity I was to Jason at the time. Like, now we're friends. Like, you know, whatever. He beats me up in the tennis court and that's okay. No, it's not. But I'm working through it with my therapist. But, you know, as I said, we have mutual friend. And my mutual friend knew. And, you know, credit to my mutual friend for not telling Jason's truth, even to someone who also happens to be openly gay. But then also, you know, credit to us as a community. While it's wonderful that we are a community, it's a good reminder at the size and scope that we have. And that while I am openly gay and I was working in sports for ESPN, that doesn't mean that I should know every single one of us. There's a lot of us. And I think that's an important part of the conversation. This isn't a small, tight-knit community. This is a large, tight-knit community. You know, your first marriage was to a woman. How aware were you of your own queerness at that time? Well, I certainly wasn't using that word, queerness. (laughs) The word I was using was I was attacked by a devil. We were both evangelical Christians. I was praying the gay away. I was a youth minister in my church at the time in which I got married. And I was under the belief that those same-sex attractions I had were simply spiritual attacks from the devil and that I just needed to continue to to pray and eventually that I would defeat the devil. That's how I was taught. That's how I was still perceiving the truth of the world to be. And so if framing it in that way, it was something that was possible to accomplish, right? Just pray hard enough. Absolutely. I mean, huh. I was in an Exodus type of program. I was in 
church praying, fasting, not eating and drinking for days and days and days, sleeping on the steps of my altar in my church, praying that when I woke up, that I will wake up heterosexual. And I did that for years. When I speak about our community and the struggles of our community, I'm not speaking of it from a place on high. I'm speaking of it from someone who has endured, someone who has persevered. I like to think that God kept me in those moments so that I could be here today helping to spread the good news. You know, that as Dan Savage says, it does get better. I'm living proof of it. it does get better. And part of that getting better is those of us who have found our way out of the closet, those of us who are using whatever platform we have to spread the good news, that we continue to do so with the same amount of urgency as we needed when we were in the same place. I I so just needed someone to come and tell me that it was okay, that there was nothing wrong with me. And eventually I got that message. It just took years. What was like the message that finally got through to you that you realized like it's not about the devil or like these spirits It's actually just you're gay? It was my therapist, actually. She was the advisor for another group of graduate students. She was an out lesbian, but she had done a presentation in my class and I had gotten to the point in which I needed resolution or the suicidal thoughts that were in my head may eventually take over. That's where I was at that point. And MJ, God bless her, helped me and my ex-wife, who eventually came in on these sessions with me, really helped us navigate through that particular chapter. She was compassionate. She extended grace. She never once said to me, you're gay. She just simply allowed me to remove all the layers to discover the truth myself. That's part of the reason why, to be quite honest with you, those men that we were you know, talking about earlier who come up to me, who are closeted athletes, who aren't ready to come out, that's the reason why I have so much grace and understanding. It's because of the way that MJ helped me through my coming out process. She didn't push me. She didn't tell me what was obvious. She simply was there to to listen, to extend grace, and to help me discover the truth myself. And that's what I try to do for those men who are closeted that do do come to me. And your wife or ex-wife being at your side during all that, that that sounds incredible. It also kind of goes against everything we think we know about like evangelicals. I mean, it still wasn't a beautiful, happy ending. Like, I'm not trying to describe Full House or nothing. Like, it was not a good picture. Oh, I re- I'm just saying there was a therapist involved. <laughs> I didn't want to mislead you or the listeners into thinking I was an after school special. Okay, I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> she was not happy. It was a horrible process. I'm glad we clarified. How old were you at this time? 22, I think. So I got married at 21. Got married very young. It's amazing to like be in the closet and, and dealing with all of that to then like fast forward and not only are you like cool your sexuality but you're like a known gay man in the public and like you know people you don't know you know you're gay that's because god has a sense of sense of humor like a very wicked sense of humor i think that's what he does to entertain himself you know i'll tell you a story it's actually it's a really really beautiful story and shout out to you margaret de ritter for being such a tremendous friend margaret was 
my editor, or one of my editors, when I was an intern, I was an intern at the Kalamazoo Gazette. And Margaret and I had, you know, developed a friendship very, very quickly. I really adored her. And we were talking about fishing. And she loved to fish. I loved to fish. So one day we decided to, to go out fishing together in this boat. And we go out and we're fishing in this boat. And we're not catching shit. Heat and bugs. That's all we got. And she says to me out of the blue, and I am not making this up. She says to me, you know, there's this new organization I'm really excited to to be a part of that I'm joining. And I go, oh, what is this organization? She says, it's, it's National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association. She was like, it's just starting and I'm just really, really excited. You know, in my head, I'm going, oh, well, that's really wonderful for you. You know, I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, you, you know, have this this organization that you can turn to and support you. You, you, you. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me in that moment, and it didn't occur to me for many years afterwards, that she wasn't saying that for herself. That she was, she was saying, I see you, and I know where you are right now, and that's okay. But when you're ready, I want you to know that this group of people over here are waiting for you. And I thought about her when I won my first NLGJA award. I thought about her when I was voted Journalist of the Year by that organization. And then one day they inducted me into its Hall of Fame. Whenever I think about NLGJA and I think about that time in my life, I think about that trip on that freaking lake with Margaret and how she just planted a seed and it just grew over the years to where I am today. So... You know, for you, and I guess for a lot of other people, I can see how they will look at my life and go, wow, boy, that was, that seemed like that was really fast and, you know, da 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 But for me, I see like this scared 20-year-old kid trying to figure out what the fuck he's going to do with his life. And by the grace of God, this wonderful woman, this gorgeous lesbian by the name of Margaret DeRitter saw me and said, here, let me plant this seed and I give it a little water and, you know, maybe it'll grow. In the most gentle way possible. In the most gentle way possible. And it's really why, Jeffrey, why I wanted to do, you know, the podcast, Life Out Loud. Because I know that there are still so many stories out there that haven't been told. And so we just want to cast as wide as net as possible with those stories, with the hope that one of them would resonate for someone in Nebraska, or one would resonate with someone who might be living in Manhattan, but they work at a conservative law firm and still don't feel like they can come out. I wanted to just try to be Margaret DeRitter and let the podcast kind of be like the fishing trip, if you will. Well, in the podcast, you're doing your second season right now. It just relaunched. What is like the one story you're most excited about for this season? You know what? I'm not going to pick my one story because I don't want to pick my favorite child. However... The episode we did on Divas really was a joy to do. And it was a joy to do because I know that a lot of the stories that people are going to hear from Miss Jody Watley and Miss Stephanie Mills are just aren't stories that are well known in the LGBTQ community. How these two women rode for us, was there for us. And Stephanie Mills for like the Broadway gays will know her from The Wiz. She was Dorothy, right? She was Dorothy from the Wiz. Yes, yes, she was. And child, let me tell you something. She goes in on Clive Davis. There was a lot of shit that Stephanie said that we could not air, that we could not put in the podcast. 
but she has some words. Woo, she has some words. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's the Divas episode. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Elsie, thank you so much for spending time with us and for the great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for so much for allowing me to give flowers to two women who really helped me. Those stories are important too. And that was Elsie Granerson. If you want to check out his new podcast, that's called Life Out Loud. New episodes of Life Out Loud come out every Thursday. Then next week, we're back here with Rachel Krantz. She's written a brand new, heavily reported book about polyamory and non-monogamy. That's called Open, and I'm very excited for you to hear that. That comes out next Tuesday. Until then, as always, if you enjoyed this interview, please help us spread the word by texting your friends or posting on social media. Those are all the biggest ways you can help our show continue to grow. Thank you so much to everyone who does that. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye. A lot of people don't know that Daniel Craig and I have a family together. So if we could not mention that, I'm the real reason why he retired from James Bond. (laughs) 